Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're discussing the Great Brinks robbery of 1950. 71 years later, many are still fascinated by this crime, and we are too. When Nina and I started doing research for our forthcoming book, we realized that Richie was connected to both of the only two men ever convicted of possessing any of the money from the heist, John Fats Bocelli and Edward Wimpy Bennett. We knew Richie had nothing to do with the crime itself, as he was only 14 years old at the time, but Richie would later be arrested for Fats's murder in 1958. You're going to have to wait until episode seven to hear more about that. As we started to look deeper into Fats's background, we too ended up down the Brinks rabbit hole. Nina, how do you want to start? I'd like to start with reviewing the timeline of how the crime reportedly unfolded on the night of the heist. Then we can take a look back at the planning. On January 17, 1950, at 7.10 p.m., seven gunmen entered the three-story building at 80 Prince Street in the north end of Boston. Five of the workers were tied up, and the bandits began looting the vault. They were in the building for 20 minutes. About 17 minutes into the heist, a buzzer sounded. It was the garage attendant. The men ignored the sound after making sure nobody was coming and continued working. They left about three minutes later. Six minutes after that, a cashier who had been tied up to uh, manage to free himself. He sounded the alarm. By 7.51 p.m., an all-points bulletin was put out. All of the BPD was ordered on duty. The Mass State Police and the FBI were notified, and the airports and the railroads were being watched. Didn't one of the reports question whether they entered at 7 p.m. or 7.10 p.m.? Yes, there was conflicting information, but later when the government's star witness came forward, they stuck to the 7.10 p.m. entry time. And the guards just let them in? Correct. For some unknown reason, the guards let them in after they had bypassed six locks to gain entry to the counting area. The supervising guard told the other to open the door. Doesn't that remind you of another crime? Yes, the Gardner heist 40 years later. The moral of the story is don't open the door. I've read two different accounts about the locks. One said they picked the locks, the other that they had keys made previously. Which one was it? Well, my favorite is the Time Magazine article that claimed that the crew broke into the building on multiple occasions under the cover of darkness, removed the lock barrel from every door along their route, fitted the keys, and reinstalled the locks in the doors before morning. That's 12 break-ins into the building, one time to remove the lock and then once to put it back after they'd had the key made, and supposedly this was done for each lock. You mentioned that the garage attendant rang the buzzer and he just left when there was no answer. Didn't Time Magazine also have a crazy story that they actually opened the door and tied him up to? One of many conflicting reports about the crime, but that Time Magazine article was really egregious. We all know it's common with high-profile crimes for false information to come pouring in, and we've seen it in other heists. Often the employees and witnesses provide conflicting information about descriptions and the number of perpetrators. The Brinks employees stated that there were six to eight men who tied them up and robbed them. They were all wearing chauffeur's caps, Halloween masks, pea coats, and all about the same height. There was a chauffeur's cap and adhesive tape left behind at the scene in addition to the rope which was used to tie up the guards. Was there anything else taken besides the money bags? Yes. In addition to the money, the thieves had escaped with four Smith & Wesson 38 revolvers. One of those guns was later found in a Somerville trash can by a cop. Another was allegedly found by a 10-year-old boy in the same area at about the same time, but when he brought it to his father, the father disposed of it. It seems likely to me that the two guns were one and the same. So let's talk about the planning of the robbery. All the information about the planning that was used to obtain the indictments came from Spex O'Keefe? Well, it came from a journalist with the Boston Globe, Joseph Deneen. Specky magically corroborated everything that was in Deneen's so-called fictionalized account of the Brinks robbery that had been published in 1954. 
A detective who heard O'Keefe's story said that Specky reminded him of those people on the twenty on the $64,000 question who know all there is to know about something. When he was on the witness stand, O'Keefe was even able to correct the attorneys who were questioning him. When the defense attorney pulled out a diorama of the building, Speck said, that isn't the whole building. We read recently a statement from Eddie Corsetti that he and the pre- that he and the press were continuously running stories that weren't based on facts in order to keep the interest alive in the heist. Corsetti said he made up the stories on orders from his editors to keep selling papers. I imagine that Deneen was doing the same. According to Spex's account, seven of the 11 men charged, except for Baker, Gushiora, Banfield, and O'Keefe, were involved in the planning of the robbery going back to 1948. Speck said that Pino approached him in 1947 about the robbery plans and that a Mr. X was behind the plot. Specs claimed to have rebuffed Pino's offer to become part of the crew because of the mysterious Mr. X. Later in 1948, Pino revealed to him that McGinnis was Mr. X and then Specs was on board. The location of the Brinks office was then on Federal Street in Boston. These meetings were said to have occurred at Pino's house in Roxbury. Each of them took turns casing the location. Pino obtained the outfits and the weapons as early as 1948. So Specky's the one giving the timeline, but he says he wasn't actually involved in the initial planning? That's correct. Now, in December of 1948, the Brinks office moved to Prince Street in Boston's North End. It was agreed that McGinnis wouldn't physically be involved in the heist, and Pino wouldn't enter the building because of a physical issue. He would stay in the truck. Banfield would drive the truck as he was a chauffeur by trade, and Costa would drive the backup car before going onto the roof of a nearby building to scope out the vault area. They supposedly made five dry runs, but the conditions weren't right until the evening of January 17th. Then there was was Speck's claim that they broke into the ADT office not once but twice in order to obtain the plans for the vault and then return them. There was even a plan to go to D.C. to break into the U.S. patent office, but they never followed through on that. I don't know about you, but that seems a little far-fetched. Far-fetched? It sounds more like pure fantasy to me. At the trial, Specs contradicted himself and said it was four dry runs. Of course, it would make sense to watch the building, to clock the guards, etc. But I doubt that he actually they actually attempted anything prior to January 17th. Supposedly, along the way, McGinnis decided they needed a telescope to make sure the vaults were open when they entered. He purchased one and later returned it for a refund. He even cashed the refund check at J.A. Smoke Shop. So they have over a million dollars from the heist, but he returns the telescope? It's unclear when he returned it, but Pino then buys binoculars for Costa to use instead of the telescope. By the time the trial rolls around in 1956, the prosecutors magically find the very same telescope out in California and have it sent back to Boston for the trial. Speaking of the 1956 trial, when the Brinks job took place in 1950, the statute of limitations in Massachusetts for armed robbery was six years. On a federal charge, the statute of limitations was just half that. Six years later, Massachusetts had increased the statute of limitations to 10 years, and the U.S. Congress had extended the statute of limitations to five years. This meant that while the alleged suspects could not be charged for the federal crime of armed robbery, they could still be charged for the same crime in Massachusetts. These amendments were passed mainly due to the slow-moving Brinks investigation. In September of 1955, the Massachusetts State Senate even tried to extend the statute of limitations to 20 years, but that was shot down. Before we dive into what happened after the robbery, let's touch on the Statler Hotel robbery, which took place the day before the Brinks heist. As we talked about in episode one, Jack Kelly appeared to be planning his heist around others as a distraction. Nina, tell us a little bit about the Statler. On January 16, 1950, yet another payroll heist took place. Three armed men, faces covered, surprised a guard outside the cashier's office and forced him to unlock the door. 
Two of the men held the cashiers at gunpoint, while the third grabbed the bag of money. They escaped through a ballroom, exiting out a side door. They apparently had a car waiting for them on Columbus Ave. The three men got away with $26,000 in cash and another $22,000 in checks, many of them negotiable. So there is the possibility at least that Jack may have at least known about it, if not directly participated in the planning of the Brinks robbery. As we will see later in season one, Jack planned upwards of a dozen robberies, robberies that he never actually participated in, including the Brinks robbery of 1968. High probability, but it was overshadowed by the Brinks job with the police calling it an amateur's job in comparison. Jack must have been grinding his teeth over that remark. Oh, no question about that. The police were much more interested in linking the Brinks job to the Sturdivant payroll robbery of 1947. On October 30th of that year, five men with sawed-off shotguns held up the Sturdivant blower works just as it was opening. It was unclear how long they had been in the building or how they'd gotten in. They were first noticed coming from the executive offices on the top floor. Two of them were wearing Halloween masks, making them unidentifiable. The masks had an added advantage. Many of the witnesses reported that they initially thought the whole thing was an elaborate joke. Similar to other robberies credited to Jack regarding how the bandits were disguised, at least. Exactly. The door to the cashier's room was closed but not locked. The money was being sorted for payroll on three tables. As in all of the other heists we have highlighted over the past few weeks, money was left behind. The change was ignored, as was another bag containing $1,000 and $10 bills. In all, $1,900 was left behind. But the men had gotten away with about $109,000 in a little over two minutes. The police had few, if any, leads. In fact, the only lead they seemed to have was the suspicion that it must have been an inside job, given how familiar the men were with the layout of the building, and the company's payroll procedures. How long until they made any arrests in the Sturdivant case? Well, they arrested many people in the area over the next week or so. Patsy Farina was arrested on October 31st as he was leaving the barber shop in Brighton where he worked. The cops were eventually forced to release him for lack of evidence. 10 days after the job, Sammy Granito was picked up by the police in New York. This was supposedly based on the tip of another criminal who was picked up for an unrelated crime. Granito and his alleged accomplices denied everything, of course. Sammy Granito goes on to be a capital regime under Jerry Angiulo and a confidant of Raymond Patriarca. We'll be discussing Sammy in other episodes this season. So, Nina, did they name the other accomplices? Happy Joe Bellino was arrested in New Jersey and extradited to Massachusetts, where he was held on a $25,000 bond. Tony Pino was also held on a $25,000 bond at the Charles Street Jail. Pino's brother-in-law, Vincent Costa, was arrested but released on a $20,000 bail. Michael Geegan was also arrested, but released by Boston police after witnesses failed to identify him in a lineup. So three of our Brink suspects are picked up for the Sturdivant heist in November of 1947. Yes. Sammy Granito was eventually tried and convicted of the Sturdivant heist. He was sentenced to a 16 to 20 year state bid. The other three men were acquitted. The $109,000 was never recovered. At the time of his arrest, Granito was out on bond for transporting $12,000 worth of antique silverware across state lines. The silverware had been stolen from a shop in Providence, Rhode Island in March of 1947. Another three-year federal bid was added on later for that job. I don't want to go too deeply into what we've labeled the disorganized crime element in Providence here. We'll be highlighting them and their escapades as we get further into the season. 
Laura, tell us about the main suspects in the Brinks case. The initial list of suspects was a whopping 93, and they were under constant surveillance. That narrowed to 88 by the spring of 1950. By 1953, the list was reduced to 44, and later to 11 who were eventually tried. Anthony Pino, Joseph McGinnis, Adolf Jazz Maffey, Vincent Costa, Michael Gagan, James Faraday, Thomas Sandy Richardson, Stanley Gush Gus Gushiar, I can't say that threat five times fast, uh, Joseph Spex O'Keefe, Henry Baker, and Joseph Banfield. As we mentioned in the Sturdivant story, three of these men, Pino, Costa, and Gagan, were suspects in that robbery also. Now, Nina, tell us about the baby chair. Nearly six months after the Brinks heist, Gus, Gus and Specky were picked up in Pennsylvania for boosting clothes and illegal gun possession. The two men were locked up in a county jail in the summer of 1950. In a phone call between O'Keefe and his estranged wife in mid-July, he made the comment, just take good care of the baby, you know what I mean? This call was apparently recorded since the feds alleged that they had heard these words spoken by O'Keefe in their later request for a search warrant. Wait, wait, wait. So Spex and Gushiar supposedly pulled off a million dollar plus robbery with the Brinks job and they're pinched in a Pennsylvania shoplifting case. Well, that's what they were picked up for. Who okay. knows if it was true? Okay. The O'Keefe home was raided a few days later after the telephone conversation, but the FBI came up empty. The baby, it turned out, was the illegitimate child of O'Keefe that he had <laughs> dumped on his wife. So they thought the baby was the Brinks loot. Well, I don't think they ever really believed that. They knew Specky was running around on his wife, but they still used it as an excuse to get a warrant. This wasn't the first time that FBI Special Agent John B. Green had sworn out a warrant on the O'Keefe family. Three months earlier, in late April 1950, O'Keefe's sister's home was also ripped apart by the FBI. Green alleged in his warrant request that Mary Hooley was hiding $60,000 from the Brinks heist in an overstuffed baby stationary chair and footstool. There was even less evidence produced for that warrant than the phone call. Of course, Green had to return the warrant because, quote, nothing was found to be seized, unquote. It's bad enough that the feds destroyed both of the houses, but Speck's wife had to get saddled with raising his love child. She must have been insane. Enough of that melodrama. Okay, let's get back to the investigation. Okay, I'm going to backtrack here just a little bit to early March 1950 before the raid on Mary Hooley's house. The feds reported that they had found the alleged getaway truck, a Ford, chopped up into pieces and burned in a dump down the street from the O'Keefe's home. Any identifying numbers on the truck had been obliterated. Even so, the cops told the press that they believed that the truck was the one that had been stolen in November of 1949 from Kenmore Square in Boston. Two days later, the feds announced that the equipment that was used to cut up the truck had been found on the side of the road in Quincy. Guess where they found it? on the side of the road leading to the Walston Golf Club. The Walston Golf Club saw a lot of action in the 1950s. I guess so, but Billy's escape attempt was much more interesting. Anyhow, according to the feds, the five bottles of, of acetylene were traced to a Somerville dealer. They had been purchased before the heist. The equipment was supposed to have been returned for a deposit, but obviously that didn't happen. The vain hope that this new evidence would yield some breakthrough was soon dashed. As they moved into 1952, the authorities were struggling to find anyone or anything to give them a reason to convene a grand jury. Rumors went around about different witnesses and suspects. One alleged suspect was murdered outside his home three days after his name was leaked to the newspapers. By the middle of the year, the authorities were starting to get desperate. Memos whizzed back and forth between government lawyers in Boston and DC discussing the finer points of the criminal law. 
The statutes and the precedents were clear. They didn't need a name. John Doe was acceptable, but a basic description was necessary to get an indictment, hair color, height, eye color, weight. The FBI couldn't even provide the lawyers with that much. The government had spent two and a half years chasing their tail. Time was running out on the statute of limitations. Something had to be done. A federal grand jury was convened on November 25th, 1952. Such an act must mean that the feds had enough concrete evidence and suspects in mind to prosecute, the media speculated. But the truth was that nothing had changed. The feds still had no new leads, no new evidence, no new suspects. Nevertheless, they knew that this was their last shot and they had to try. They'd initiated their fishing expedition. Twelve indictments were reportedly sought, 40 subpoenas served, but the fishing expedition began to hit roadblocks in the form of reluctant witnesses and an uncooperative FBI who refused to transport Stanley Gouchiara to Massachusetts from where he was still locked up in Pennsylvania on weapons charges. Spex, who was locked up in Pennsylvania on the same charge, was allowed to appear, but he was reluctant to speak and ended up being charged with contempt of court. Another unnamed witness was given the weekend to think it over when he refused to testify. Specky's sister, Mary Hooley, was sentenced to one year in jail for contempt of court on December 8th. Her husband and another brother were also charged with contempt for refusing to answer questions. And the contempt charges kept rolling in. Boston bookie John Henry Carlson was sentenced to 18 months. On December 17th, 1952, Edward Wimpy Bennett was charged along with Adolph Jazz Maffey, John Daly, and Joseph Banfield. The charges against Banfield and Bennett were eventually dropped on January, January 7th, 1953, when they agreed to testify. Maffey and Daly kept quiet and were released on $5,000 bail on January 5th, 1953. The FBI also refused to testify, but they were given cover by the judge who stated that they couldn't testify because their knowledge about the particulars of the case was, quote, secret and confidential, unquote. On January 17th, 1953, the federal grand jury returned its decision. No indictments, secret or otherwise. The U.S. Attorney's Office had failed. The federal statute of limitations for the charge of armed robbery had now passed. However, the Fed still had another card to play. The feds were struggling to find any new leads, so they turned their attention to a heist that took place in early 1952. An armored truck was robbed in broad daylight on March 25, 1952. The truck parked in front of a drugstore on Danvers Avenue after making a delivery, and the guards jumped out for their usual mid-morning break. While they were inside getting their coffee, three men broke into the truck. They transferred over $600,000 into a waiting Buick that was double-parked, and sped off at 85 miles per hour toward, toward Peabody. Peabody, you almost said it right. I was going to give you shit about it, thinking you were going to say it like Waltham. You almost said it right. Okay, okay. Oh, my gosh. Crazy Bostonians and your mispronunciations. Whatever. You, hey, you're not saying the names wrong anymore. I'm, I'm rubbing off on you. Okay, okay. Anyway, as I was saying, the Buick was later found abandoned about 15 miles away in Everett. It had been stolen out of a commuter parking lot there from a construction worker who lived in Malden. A Pontiac from the same parking lot was their next getaway vehicle. It too was later found abandoned. The trail went cold after that. The media noted the job's, quote, precision and cold-blooded daring, unquote. This time, about $87,000, mostly in coins, was left behind. Now, who does that remind you of? Jack, cold-blooded and precise. Mm-hmm. So at first, the feds thought that they'd caught a lucky break. There was some hope that the armored truck job at Danvers would hold the key to the still unsolved Brinks job. The armored truck at Danvers was housed in the same building as the Brinks armored cars. 
The thieves had a key to enter the truck through the passenger side of the cab. The door from the cab into the back of the truck had been left unlocked by the guards. As we will see in other robberies Jack committed our plan, keys were made ahead of time. At this point, nearly $3 million had been stolen in the Northeast between 1947 and 1952. One million of that had been stolen between January 1950 and March 1952. And little, if any of it, was ever recovered. The fantasy of an easy two-for-one was soon dashed. The police were unable to find a single witness who would admit to seeing what had happened that morning. A traffic cop had been about to admonish the men for double parking, but they sped off before he could reach them. An additional patrolman was usually stationed at Danvers Square. He would keep an eye on the truck for the men while they took their coffee break. However, he was given every sixth Tuesday off, and March 26th just happened to be that day. Special Agent McNamara and his FBI team were at a loss. As the federal grand jury came to its dissatisfying conclusion in January of 1953, the feds decided to try a new angle. George O'Brien had a record dating back to 1920 and was linked to suspects in both the Brinks and the Sturdivant heists. The FBI had him on their list of suspects in the Brinks job because of that. Their hope was that O'Brien would be the key to cracking the case. On Thanksgiving Day 1953, 20 months after the Danvers heist, George O'Brien's home in the Walston section of Quincy was raided by the FBI. George had purchased the house for $22,000 in February the same year, 11 months after Danvers. He had also purchased two cars for $5,700 at about the same time. Since O'Brien was unemployed, this made the FBI suspicious. Another FBI raided his son's car and dorm room at MIT at the exact same time. George Jr. was driven around by the feds for six hours, all the while being questioned. It sounds more like a kidnapping. Exactly. The son told the feds about a safety deposit box that he and his mother held. They confiscated $3,100 from it. George Jr. and his mother were charged with receipt of stolen property. The boy was expelled from MIT as a result. The president of MIT did allow him to return to classes pending the outcome of the case. In addition, George O'Brien's brother was questioned at the Howard State Prison in Rhode Island. Authorities were also seeking to question a guard from the Danvers robbery that happened to also be a former employee at the Brinks office on Prince Street. It turned out that a neighbor of O'Brien's was the one who called the FBI with suspicions about the O'Brien family. O'Brien was charged with theft of more than $100 on December 23, 1953. He was not charged with armed robbery. Nevertheless, the judge refused bail on the recommendation of the assistant U.S. attorney who cited O'Brien's long criminal record. It was eventually reduced to $100,000, but never lowered from that amount. At the trial, the real estate agent testified that O'Brien put $10,000 cash down on the house and was carrying the balance of $9,000 in a mortgage. None of the over $10,000 found in O'Brien's home or the safety deposit box were linked to either robbery. On the witness stand, an official from the Federal Reserve failed to identify the money as matching the money stolen at Danvers. George O'Brien was eventually acquitted in April 1954 after just 30 minutes of deliberation by the jury. Two months later, on June 17, 1954, George was found shot in his car near Franklin Park. A 38 caliber revolver was found wedged between his left arm and his body and one spent round on the floor of his car. A bullet penetrated his right temple and exited the left. His wife said he went out to make a phone call as he believed his phone was tapped and was headed to an appointment with his lawyer, Paul Smith, in Boston. It was later deemed a suicide. Nina, what do you think? Well, my first thought is that maybe it was one of the missing 38s from the Brinks job, but why would you kill yourself after being found not guilty? 
But here's where it gets even crazier. The same day that George was shot, Elmer Trigger Burke tried to kill Specky in a 35-minute attempted hit in Dorchester, which was located less than a mile from where George's body was found. We will be doing a bonus episode on Elmer Trigger Burke later this season. Dad tried to get Burke's story written for years. He had endless documents about him and was working with, I believe, Armin Mastriani on the story off and on for over a decade. I don't know why they never finished it or whatever happened to all those papers. I assume that dad knew Burke through the McLaughlins since he was close to them and Burke was friends with them. Burke was picked up on June 18th on Huntington Avenue in Boston. The authorities found an arsenal in Burke's rented room on St. Patal Street. The ballistics test matched one of the machine guns to the rounds found at the Victory Street scene from the attempted hit on Specs. 30 shots fired in 35 minutes. New York wanted Burke returned there for three murder charges, but the locals refused on the basis of the machine gun charges. Back to Specky. After the attempt on Specky's life, he goes on the lam. There was another murder attempt made on July 6th on St. Patel Street, but once again, he managed to escape. Specky found himself on the FBI's most wanted list with five warrants out on him for violating his parole. There was a raid in Halifax on June 21st, but they came up empty-handed. On the same day, John H. Carlson came forward to say that he was with Specky the night that Burke tried to kill him. In the meantime, George McLaughlin was also on the lam in Maine. Remember what I said in episode one, that all of our stories end up in Maine? Well, it still makes me crazy. George gets picked up trying to boost a $17 woman's swimsuit. He was released on $500 bail only after being reassured by the judge that his bail wouldn't be forfeited if he returned to court. Mind you, he had $760 in his pocket when he was arrested for stealing a swimsuit. He was transferred to Somerville, Massachusetts, and once again released on bail. His occupation was listed as a gambler, even though he had a union organizer's card on him. The feds were hoping that they could use George to solidify their case against Trigger Burke. Finally, on August 1st, 1954, Specky was captured and turned over to Boston. Two days later, Boston bookie John Carlson went missing. He was one of the men charged with contempt during the federal grand jury in late 1952. Carlson's body was never found one of many to be killed over the next 15 years in Boston and the surrounding area. Burke was arraigned on the machine gun charge the same day. On August 7th, Specky was transferred to the Springfield House of Correction. The DA was going to place him in Charles Street Jail with Burke, but apparently had a last minute change of heart. Good thing too, since on August 28th, Elmer Trigger Burke escaped from the Charles Street Jail. In September, Pino was accused of having hired Burke to take out Specs and Carlson. Pino, under oath, denied the allegation. At the time, Pino was being held without bail by immigration officials and was deemed a witness in the Brinks case. He was slated to be deported because of morals, morals charges, can't even say that, from his youth, and stealing a dozen golf balls in 1948. Later the next month, on the night of October 23rd at 10 p.m., a Revere truck driver on his way home sees a bag of money on Route 828 as he stopped at a light. He gets out, picks up the bag, sets it on the seat next to him, and continues home. Stopping at a nearby restaurant parking lot so he can see what he just picked up, he's shocked to find that the bag is stuffed with money, including $1,000 bills. Rather than going directly to the police, the man decides to head home. The bag is still sitting beside him. He doesn't get too far, however, when he gets carjacked and beaten by four guys who then drive away with the bag. How can you make this shit up? And what does it have to do with anything in the story? Well, the feds were convinced that it was 250 grand from the Brinks job. Uh, you talk about grasping at straws. All right, get back to specs. Okay, so the feds finally had their man after five long years, right where they wanted him. 
They had initially picked him up on an old parole violation, but that wasn't enough to keep him in prison for as long as they needed him to be. So they dug back into his 30-year-old record and found a suspended sentence for a 1945 gun possession charge. The feds convinced the judge to revoke the suspension and got a 27-month extension on jail time. In March of 1955, the authorities claimed that Specky's life was in danger and moved him to an isolation cell at Concord. No outside time allowed. Special Agent Larkin and Special Agent in Charge Ed Powers visited Specs on a regular basis. They were courting him by bringing him cigarettes, candy, and gifts. The agents told Specs that other members of the Brinks gang were, quote, laughing at him. They were on the loose and he was in the can, unquote. Eventually, Specs broke. On January 11, 1956, O'Keefe began to tell the prosecutors an amazing tale, a tale almost identical to Deneen's 1954 book, a story so detailed that it could only have come from someone who was on the inside of the job, both in its planning and its execution. Or someone who had read Deneen's book well, like 50 well, times. Well, he had enough <laughs> over time. Over and over He again. had enough time in there locked in isolation. Been there a year and a half. Oh, my gosh. O'Keefe okay. claimed that he had been cheated out of 95% of his share of the loot. He hinted that he flipped because he felt that he had been double-crossed by McGinnis. He also indicated that he was not the only one who had been cheated. Costa had lost out on 25 grand, Richardson 20 grand, and even Pino had been shortchanged 10 grand. O'Keefe continued on in this vein, blaming everyone in the crew for how it all went sideways and alleging that his accomplices had tried to kill him not once, but twice. Don't forget, Spex's jailer said he was a model prisoner, that they never had a better one. He was in isolation. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you get, hey, look at, what's his name? Billy Aggie was in isolation throwing the mattress at the cell door. So okay, that, well. that, that doesn't mean it's going to be good behavior. All right. With the help of all their well-behaved their well-behaved prisoner, the feds finally got their wish. Just before the sixth year, they were able to get indictments against the 11 suspects. The grand jury was comprised of 17 people rather than the customary 23. The prosecutor's office said they did not want to hear about technicalities. On January 12th, six of the suspects were arrested. Anthony Pino, Ed F. Jazz Maffey, Vincent Costa, Michael Gigan, Joseph McGinnis, and Henry Baker were all taken into custody. Jazz's six-year-old son called the Quincy police when he saw his father being handcuffed. The officers arrived to find the FBI there. Gus was already in custody in Pennsylvania. Joseph Banfield had died. Sandy Richardson and James Faherty were on the lam with FBI wanted posters out for their arrest. Gus was extradited from Pennsylvania in May of 1956 to say he wasn't pleased with being roped into Spex's story was an understatement. He told the media that the FBI had hounded him for six years. They'd also harassed his family, showing up at their house two times a week, asking the same question about the Brinks job over and over again. The feds had finally gotten to Specky, and he had lost his mind, Gus alleged, all the while maintaining his own innocence. Richardson, Richardson and Faherty were finally arrested on May 17, 1956, in a Dorchester apartment while eating a beef stew dinner. A little over two months later, Gushiara dropped dead in the prison hospital at Norfolk. The autopsy report came back that he had acute cerebral edema from a tumor as the cause of death. He was just 36 years old. The Brinks trial was one month away now. The trial began on August 27, 1956, after 13 days of wrangling to impanel a jury. 1,181 people were challenged or disqualified prior to that. Their jurors were sequestered and even an electronic ray gun was brought in to prevent any of them from watching any programming that might influence their deliberations. 
one court officer would be present with the ray gun gadget to, in hand while the jurors were watching TV or listening to the radio, ready to zap it at any moment. I have some vision of um, what's the Andy Griffith show kind of a thing going on. No, no, that cartoon thing, the Jetsons or one of those things. And there was that little guy and he looked like a centurion and he had like a little ray gun in his hand running around. Oh, so I, that's what, I, you never I, saw I, that. I know, what the, I know what the Jetsons are, but I never want, I don't recall. That I think that's where it was from. Episode so or something. Yeah. So that's what I had this vision of this big like green thing or something in his hand. Anyhow, as if they didn't spend enough money on the trial and the, and the investigation, it ended up being like three times the amount of what was actually stolen. Then they had to bring in special pillows. They were taking the jurors on tours to Cape Cod and movie outings all to fill up their weekends. The trial lasted until October 5th, 1956. It took the jury three and a half hours to return a verdict of guilty for all the men. Pino, Costa, Matthew, Gigan, Faherty, Richardson, and Baker all received life sentences, two years for conspiracy to steal, and eight to 10 years for breaking and, breaking and entering at night. McGinnis, who was not present at the robbery, also received a life sentence for being an accessory before the fact, plus three other sentences ranging from two years to 10 years. All future appeals were rejected. Baker and McGinnis died in Walpole. During the trial, Baker questioned O'Keefe's sanity in a petition to the court. He also alleged that O'Keefe was, quote, a drug addict, a chronic liar, and one who liked to exhibit himself in the nude, unquote. Maffey, Richardson, Costa, Faherty, and Gagan were released in December of 1969. Pino was released in 1970. He ended up back in prison for one year and then passed away at his home in October of 1973. Costa, along with Maffey and Richardson, worked with Noel Ben to write the big stick up at the Brinks. In 1977, it was announced that Dino De Laurentiis was adapting the book for a movie, The Great Brinks Robbery. Each of them received a $10,000 advance plus royalties on the story. But Costa couldn't stay out of trouble. He was arrested in 1976 for participating in a counterfeit ring and later for manslaughter in New York while he was out on parole for the manslaughter charge and supposed to be on lifetime parole for the Brinks robbery. He was pinched with three ounces of cocaine in 1985 up in New Hampshire, I believe. Jazz Matthew and Sandy Richardson became stars with the making of the Brinks movie in 1978, signing autographs at the premiere in Boston. Jazz passed away at his home in September of 1988, and Richardson passed away earlier than that in September of 1980. Gagan called himself the staff sergeant and claimed they pulled off the Sturdivant job. His share was 23,000 from that. He said he never fire, fired a gun during a holdup. He also claimed to have plastic keys made for every Brinks truck and to have been systematically pulling off heists for several years prior to the Brinks heist. He said Specs didn't lie in his testimony, but he should have protected Gus and that Maffey didn't take Specs' money. They all blamed Gucciara for bringing Specs on board. O'Keefe ends up out in Hollywood, works as Cary Grant's driver, supposedly under an assumed name, but everybody knew his story, and he eventually passed away in 1976. Nina? Oh, um, well, <laughs> again, <still> <laughs> yeah. I thought you left me. Uh, no. Uh, well, again, he had no problem telling everybody his story, his life oh, story. He was, he was described, <laughs> listen, he was described as a natty dresser. So I, you know, besides working for Cary Grant, I'm not sure he was getting enough money to be a natty dresser, but that's how they described him. Um, okay. Anyhow. Okay. So they've all left this world and their stories are still alive. Um, Nina, what about your theories about the robbery? 
So numerous articles and books have been written on the Brinks job, and everyone just assumes that McNamara and his FBI team solved the crime. But I have to tell you, I find the results very dissatisfying. And you know that one of my hobbies is researching white-collar crimes, so of course my mind went there almost immediately as an alternative hypothesis, that the heist was an inside job to cover up some kind of financial fraud. It's like you're more likely to be murdered by someone you know than by a stranger. It's the same principle. So you're thinking some sort of insurance fraud on the armored carrier's part rather than a run-of-the-mill employee such as a guard? Right. Because at first the feds did think it was an inside job, and they seemed to only focus on the men who were at the scene of the crime. And after those men passed multiple lie detector tests, the fed tests, the feds dropped that theory. Luckily, I don't give up as easily as the FBI does, so I had to keep digging and pursuing my white-collar crime theory, and that's how I got to the insurance claims. So the Brinks company had a $5 million all-risk policy with the British-based insurance company Commercial Union. This policy included theft and was held by a British firm because U.S. law did not allow for universal policies. U.S. firms could only insure against specific risks. Brinks also used U.S. firms for specific risks and held $10 million in those types of policies. In addition, there was a $9 million universal policy with Lloyd's of London. Hmm, that's all really interesting, actually. Now, did anyone ever receive any of the reward money? Within 24 hours of the heist, Brinks offered a reward of $100,000 and Commercial Union offered a reward of $50,000 for any information leading to the capture and conviction of the bandits and any recovery of the loot. These rewards were never paid out because the case was eventually solved by the FBI and they couldn't accept reward money as public servants. And then I guess Specs didn't qualify as he was party to the crime. Then too, did they ever recover any of the loot? Well, $50,000 or somewhere in that range, I'll give you the exact number when we do episode seven, was found in Wimpy's building in the summer of 1956. So actually just before the trial started was when they found that money. Um, and it was all covered in mold and sand and bugs and everything else. Um, so what about the insurance claims themselves? By late March 1950, more than 75% of the insurance claims on the Brinks heist had been paid out. A big ad in the newspapers of New England was taken out by Commercial Union, who noted that over 100,000 people had been reimbursed. By July of that year, $200,000 had still not been claimed. But I think that was just the checks. Remember that $1.2 million of what was stolen was cash. But then there was another $1.5 million in checks, money orders, and other securities. How long until all the claims were submitted? I'm not sure if that 200 grand was ever claimed, but from what I could gather, Brinks was paid their portion of the claim within hours. Some piece of that was covered by Lloyds of London, but I'm not sure what the percentage was. And what about the insurance on the Danvers job? Danvers was more straightforward. As a payroll robbery, the victims and the amounts owed to them were known. Those amounts were reimbursed within 24 hours. Commercial Union was again the insurer. The guards were also bonded through Commercial Union. Of course, the company suspended their coverage because they'd abandoned the truck in the square that morning. After George O'Brien was acquitted of the Danvers job in April of 54, Commercial Union filed a claim for the $10,000 that had been seized from the O'Briens by the FBI, even though there was no evidence that any of that money had come from the Danvers job. What a bunch of creeps. And what about the Brinks company itself? Commercial Union's American representative, Hugh Edward Reeves, had been on a board member at Brinks since 1941. In this dual role, he engineered Brinks insurance policies and was intimately familiar with the operations of the company. I guess they were, they were protecting their interests, 
but it still seems like a conflict of interest to me. No argument for me. Then in March of 56, Reeves and other members of the Brinks board filed an antitrust suit against the chairman of the board, J.D. Allen. The suit alleged that Allen was selling the company out from under them. Allen had already sold 44,500 shares to a New York-based holding company named Pittston. He was on the verge of selling another 55,000 shares to a Pittston subsidiary. If the sale was allowed to go through, Reeves' lawsuit alleged, Pittston would have a monopoly. Well, the two parties finally reached an agreement in 1957, but the purchase wasn't completed until 1962. Pittston changed their name to Brinks in 2003. That I did not know. Um, and it's probably still the most recognizable name in armored transport out there. Well, I would recognize the truck if I saw it. <laughs> um, it's just, but it's just suspicious to me that Allen sold his shares just as the indictments were coming down for the Brinks case. The company had also been having labor troubles in the form of strikes the previous year, though, so maybe he was just ready to retire. I'm still leaning toward insurance fraud in both cases. At least it makes more sense than the crew the feds picked up. Now, what about Mr. X? I still have my doubts that any of the men in that crew were capable of planning such an elaborate heist. We've got a crew stealing golf balls, shoplifting clothes, exposing themselves, and pulling smaller jobs, so it's, it's a tough sell for me. Yes, Costa, Matthew, and Richardson confessed to the author who was writing the Brinks book, but they had already done the time and might as well have profited from it. I'm not questioning their involvement necessarily, only their ability to plan it. And don't forget that when Billy got picked up after his lawnmower adventure, the feds were still sure that Mr. X was out there. They thought that he was the mastermind behind the Granite Trust job and that he was getting a 25% cut for every job that he planned. As I mentioned earlier, Jack openly states much later in court that he planned numerous heists over the years for other crews. As for their keys and their claim to have keys to every Brinks truck in Boston, plastic no less, I don't buy it. I do know, or I shouldn't say I know, I heard um, that in the 1960s, Jack had a guy from Canada that was making keys for the trucks that they were going to hit, but only those specific keys. Well, that definitely makes sense with the Danvers job. We know that they couldn't have picked the locks on the truck. Apparently, a spare key for each truck was just sitting out at the garage on Prince Street where anyone could grab them when they needed to. So it makes sense that Jack would have had the key made. And then there was a report early on in the case that the usual guard downstairs had the night off and no one was assigned to take his place. The door that he usually guarded was left unlocked, and that's allegedly how the men got in. But we never hear from them again. I do want to mention the statement from the Boston Police Department lieutenant, and I can't recall his name right now, who was Pino's alibi on the night of the heist. And he goes back into court and testifies to, the, to it again in court. He, McGinnis, and Pino were in McGinnis's liquor store in Dorchester at 7 p.m. that evening. To get from Dorchester to the north end in 10 minutes, even if the streets were empty, is nearly impossible. Anyone who knows Boston and the traffic there will attest to that. Yes, it was 1950, but if you read the FBI surveillance reports on the other suspects at that time, they were constantly losing them in the traffic. Wait, so they were saying that Pino was at McGinnis's, then took off to go to the Brinks job and, and got, got to the Brinks job. In 10 minutes. I, the timing still, the timing on that is just really weird. Anyway, but I thought the traffic in LA was bad. I don't know. I suffered through LA traffic once. When was that? Back in 2019, having to drive down to 
Yucca Valley there. And uh, you guys keep moving, at least. We're like at a standstill constantly, blowing the horn, cursing, swearing out the window, and blaming everybody for us being in the traffic. But anyhow. <laughs> okay. But does it make sense to you that nobody saw them enter the building at 7 o'clock on a weeknight? Uh, well, especially in the North End. There was a woman who came forward several days later who said she saw a fancy black sedan, but no other eyewitnesses. And so, no, it doesn't make sense to me at all. Not much of this story, when you really, really look at it, makes sense. Anything else you want to add in there, Nina? Um, I think that's it. We are going to put up some show notes and um, start blogging So for more information so you can engage with us on our website. Yeah, so Nina's going to be posting all of the things that end up on the uh, cutting floor that we don't actually get into the episode. Nina will be posting blogs about that. And I promise I be a delinquent and I will get all of the rest of the show notes and newspaper articles and everything also up on the website. We'd love to hear your thoughts or your theories about the Brinks job. So please feel free to email me at Laura at doubledealpodcast.com. The link will be in the show notes. I promise you next week we'll be discussing Roy Appleton con man to armor. So I hope you listen in. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Double Deal Podcast, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.